I have to do something this morning that I'm a little bit ashamed about, okay? And so I need your grace and your forgiveness. I have to start the sermon with a cat video. <laughs> I don't feel good about it. I don't, I don't, I just so, um, but as I was trying to capture this idea, I could not find anything better. So I just want to let you know that uh, no cats were harmed in the making of this video. Uh, and as I was thinking about the disciples, uh, this is what kept running through my head. Okay, no kidding. I watched that video like 12 times last night. It gets better every time you see it. Uh, this makes me think of the disciples, okay? So um, we have been on this journey for these last few weeks, the disciples following Jesus, Him trying to prepare them for what's to come, and they just cannot get it, right? They just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And um, we had even a few weeks ago a conversation where they were arguing with each other about who was going to be the greatest. Like of all the disciples, which one of us will be the most famous or the most important? Uh, ironically, that was right after the last time Jesus said that He was going to give His life for other people. Uh, and so uh, the disciples keep coming back to the, the teaching of Jesus and sort of just running into a wall. They, they cannot get it. And I get the impression that they think, if we just had a little bit more, right, if we could just do a little bit more, jump a little bit further, if we could, if we could, just, we could just push this a little bit harder, maybe we could get the message that Jesus is trying to send. And so the disciples on their way to Jerusalem, even before they get to Jericho, are amazed and afraid. We're not told what they're amazed by or what they're afraid of. We're just told they're amazed and they're afraid, and Jesus takes them aside, and He says, hey, guys, I'm going to die. It's going to be terrible. But after that, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples say, hey, I wonder who could get the best seat next to Jesus' throne. Like, they just, they don't get it. Uh, and so James and John come to Jesus, and instead of saying, who's the greatest, they say, hey, um, we would like you to let us sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, when you come into your glory. The, the disciples are saying, hey, you know, we think of this kingdom that you've been talking about, this, this future that you've been preparing us for, and we think it's going to be a lot like this world, right? We're just going to be on top instead of on bottom. And so, we assume Jesus and your new kingdom, power and privilege will still be rooted in our exaltation of others. We assume it'll still be all about ranking and who's on the top and who gets to sit closest to the king. We assume that all the values of our world will be values of your kingdom, that we want to get what we didn't earn because of who we know. Uh, and we want to have dominance over others, and we want to be the focal point of other people's adoration. Um, we, we think in this new kingdom, um, if we just we can just get at the most important seats of power, then finally we'll get it. And Jesus says, guys, it's not that you need a little bit more. It's that, like, I don't want you on the roof. 
right? That your objective here is totally wrong. That what you think will make for a good life, what you think this coming kingdom is about, what you think I want is totally off. If Jesus wanted dominance over others, if Jesus wanted the world to adore Him, He could make it happen, right? That's not what He came to do. That's the other guy. Jesus says, as long as you are trying uh, to live according to the values of this world, of my enemy's kingdom, you're not going to fit into mine. I don't want you on the roof. There's nothing good for you there. 1973, um, there was a guy named John Eric Olson uh, who was a convict on parole in Stockholm, Sweden, he went into a bank and he took four people captive and actually negotiated with the police and got uh, one of his friends who was in prison released. And he and his friend held the captives, uh, the hostages uh, in that bank inside a bank vault for six days from August 23rd to August 28th. Finally, when the hostages were released, um, a really weird thing happened. Those hostages to a woman, to a man, refused to testify in court against the men who had held them at gunpoint. Instead, they started raising money for their captor's defense. It was a really weird situation, and it actually gave rise to this phrase, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is this idea that sometimes we become um, so connected with our captors that we begin to um, take their side against the world. Um, By the way, uh, Stockholm Syndrome is not a a, a scientifically diagnosable disease. It really is uh, an attempt to explain how this happens, how it happens that people who are in these Um, Abusive relationships take the side of their abuser. And and I think actually it's not that strange. I think that if you are trapped in a situation where you are constantly um, verbally or physically belittled and berated and threatened and harmed, then when you have a moment with just maybe a lack of abuse, maybe coupled with some small ordinary kindness. When that is given to someone who is desperate for normal human interaction, it can feel disproportionately meaningful. So, all these people in these situations end up saying, hey, it's not just that um, I've been kidnapped, but I can really see it from my kidnapper's perspective, right? I can understand where they're coming from. They're not as bad as everyone makes them out to be. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and He says, guys, You seem to think that what you need is a little more of what this world has to offer. I want you to understand that you have been kidnapped. I want you to understand that you are in an abusive relationship with the world. And because sometimes the world gives you a little bit of a handout or a hand up, you've come to think that, hey, that's good enough for me. That's what success looks like. That's what health looks like. You have built a new identity as slaves to sin, and you have confused what is good and what is bad until you can't tell the difference anymore. Jesus says to the disciples, what you need isn't teaching. You need to be ransomed. 
You need to be rescued. You need to be redeemed. That's what I've come to do. When Jesus says this line, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many, um, that has to trigger for the disciples and for everybody listening the whole core story of their faith, which is the exodus of Egypt, right? This, this story where the Israelites, um, their ancestors, our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, were uh, literally trapped in slavery to Pharaoh, uh, a slavery that was brutal and backbreaking, that involved horrific labor and who knows what else, uh, a slavery that ultimately became so bad that the Egyptians started murdering the babies, the boy babies of the Israelites to keep their population under control. And into that situation, when God shows up, He says, hey, you know what? You don't need a little bit of help making bricks faster. You don't need a little bit of help to um, hold on to your babies longer before they're murdered in the River Nile. What you need is a rescue. You need to be ransomed. You need to be redeemed. And so we get um, the incredible story of God's salvation in Exodus, uh, just briefly summarized here in Isaiah 51. Was it not you, Yahweh, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over? God, weren't you the one that parted the seas and let us walk free from slavery into freedom, um, from oppression into the promised land? So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Jesus says uh, the most important verse of the gospel of Mark, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. I want to rescue you from the slavery to this world, from all of the corrupted values, and, and your attempt to just jump a little further and get a little farther. I want you to have a different kind of life. The author of Mark is an incredible writer, and he does these little moments of irony that we're supposed to notice. There's two in this passage. Uh, the, the first one comes when James and John say, hey, Jesus, we would like to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Uh, this is ironic because they are thinking, hey, you know what? We want to be important and famous and powerful, and they are right that Jesus is going to be glorified. And they are right that the glory of Jesus will be unparalleled since the creation of the universe, that it will reveal Him to be the most powerful and most awesome and most gracious and most exalted and most loving person they could ever imagine. The problem is they don't understand what the glory of Jesus looks like because the irony here is that the only other time this phrase will be used to be at His right hand and at His left will be when Jesus is exalted on a cross. And to his right hand and to his left, thieves are crucified beside him. Jesus says, hey, you want to know what my kingdom's like? You want to know um, what my victory will be like? You want to know how I'm going to slay Rahab, the dragon, the serpent, and ransom and redeem you from the enemy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it completely differently than the way this world does it. And I want you to be a part of a kingdom that looks like me and not like Rahab. The kingdom of heaven is not just earth with benefits. The values of the kingdom are inverted on earth. On earth, we are tempted to safety, and heaven and the kingdom of heaven, we're tempted to reckless selflessness. On earth, we're tempted to 
compartmentalized, to live in these little bubbles. Um, but in the kingdom of heaven, our focus on God and our neighbor and our love for each are interwoven. In the kingdom of earth, we are tempted to greatness. In the kingdom of heaven, we are enthralled by a life of humble service. In the kingdom of earth, we're tempted to division. In the kingdom of heaven, we have this unbreakable union with each other where those people are our people. In the kingdom of earth, we are tempted to accumulation. In the kingdom of heaven, we practice the radical generosity of a God who had everything and gave it up for us. I think the disciples understand this. They just don't know it. I had this conversation with our, our students this week. Um, I think there's a huge difference between understanding and knowing. Uh, I have never been skydiving, but I understand the general principle of how it works. You put a parachute on, you jump out of a plane, you pull the cord, you don't die, right? Um, I understand how it works, but I am not going to jump out of a plane like ever, ever, ever because I don't know that it's going to work, right? I have this sense that maybe it's not going to. Jesus says, hey, Maybe you understand that my kingdom is different, but you don't know it. And so you want, you want to keep going back to this world. It's like the Israelites, as they wander through the wilderness, begging Moses, can we just go back to Egypt? Like, this is really hard. Being free is hard. We liked being enslaved. Let's go back to being slaves again. We do this all the time um, when we say as Christians, um, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to win this argument by just overpowering the other person, whether that's with violence or with yelling or just saying because I said so. It's just going back to slavery. When we envision ourselves as the center of all things, from authority to romance to popularity, it's just going back to slavery. When we're consumed by a desire to be respected when we think our value comes in comparison to others, when we give all-consuming attention to unimportant things, right? It's just going back to slavery. Jesus offers us an alternative. And He does it in the second story in this passage. And this is, oh, by the way, the other point of irony we're supposed to notice. Uh, when James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, and we want you to do for us whatever we, we ask, He says, what is it you want me to do for you? He asks almost that exact same question to Bartimaeus in Jericho. Did you notice? Um, he calls Bartimaeus forward. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Same question. Radically different answer. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. That's his career, right? We think of it as his illness. It's also his career. Like how he makes money is he begs. And his blindness is the tool to make that begging successful. He doesn't, as far as we know, have any other skill set. That's what he does all day long, every day. He's a blind beggar. He sees Jesus going by, and he calls out to him, and Jesus says, come here, and he throws off his cloak. That cloak, by the way, is like the tool of his trade. It's the way he collects money. It's critical for his job. He throws it off. He leaves it behind. He runs to Jesus, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he doesn't say, Jesus, I want to be the best beggar I can be. He doesn't say, Jesus, I want to be king of the blind men. He says, Jesus, I want to be made well. I want to see. I want to be ransomed. I want my whole life to change, whatever the cost. This is the dramatic difference between 
the disciples and Bartimaeus. The disciples want more of this world, and Bartimaeus wants a whole new world. He says, I don't want to live according to the values that I've been living. I want a new life. In Galatians, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is uh, God's calling on our life, right? If we can accept that we don't need just more of this world, we need a whole new world predicated upon the story of Jesus and not the story that we have been telling ourselves. We have the potential to not go back into those patterns of slavery. We need to see things fresh. Uh, I came across a, a beautiful video that kind of summarizes this idea. I want to share it with you.
you can stay spiritually blind your whole life. You can maybe get a little better at coping. You can get a little closer to the roof. You might make it on the roof. You might become the best beggar on your street. You might become the king of all the blind beggars. But Jesus offers another option. He says, if you'll give up all that, if you'll give up the idea that what the world has is really good and come to believe that what He has is really good, you can become one who sees and one who serves. And the lowliest person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than any who was born of earth. This is what Jesus offers us today. He offers us the opportunity to not go back into those patterns of slavery and sin because we have been ransomed by Christ. We've been ransomed by Christ from the powers of darkness that once enslaved us. And so the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Another singer said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. In the midst of all of the brokenness of this world, follow Jesus, for He will lead you not into temptation. Thanks be to God. Amen.